Hello, welcome to the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast, where we learn and grow with philosophy from the farm. After a brief hiatus, thank you all for being patient, we have an amazing guest today. Our guest is Christina Adams. She's a writer and author of both A Real Boy and her most recent book, Camel Crazy, A Quest for Miracles in the Mysterious World of Camels. Today on the show, we'll be discussing how Christina got interested in camels, the benefits of camel milk, the basics on raising camels, and much, much more. This was truly a delightful conversation, so please join us as we talk with Christina Adams. Christina Adams, welcome to the show. Wonderful to be here today, Terrence. Now, before we get started talking about the book, Camel Crazy, which I absolutely adored, would you mind giving us a little bit of a biographical sketch for the audience? Oh, I'm happy to do that. So I actually am a writer by trade, so to speak, but I spent some time on a farm growing up in Virginia, and then I went to Washington. I worked in the Pentagon and things like that, and um, then I worked for aerospace, moved to California, and then I turned my career more to a different kind of writing. So now I'm the author of two books. The first one is called A Real Boy, A True Story of Autism, Early Intervention, and Recovery. And the new one, of course, today we'll talk about is Camel Crazy, A Quest for Miracles in the Mysterious World of Camels. And uh, my work has appeared in the L.A. Times, Washington Post, National Public Radio, uh, lots of different publications. And it did, uh, the Camel Crazy book won the Nautilus Book Award, so uh, happy about that. And I do speak a lot, and I have a master's in creative writing. And um, anyway, that's that's what kind of, um, I'm a writer by trade, as I said, but I moved to the whole agrarian kind of concept because of my interest in food, and then that led me to camels. Mm-hmm. So what was it that led to the interest in camels? Because I know that this sounds shocking to most people, but it's not the first farm animal I think of these days. <laughs> it's not the first farm animal anybody thinks of unless they generally have that heritage tradition of camels. And most people that have that are certainly not in America. And even the ones that do have that in the countries well-known for camels, a lot of times those people, uh, pastoralists, we can call them generally, are kind of off the radar. So... Uh, the funding part is, though, that camels really help settle our entire globe. I mean, their use in the uh, Silk Road um, Silk Road trading routes, their um, ability to help distribute goods and uh, people across the globe um, has influenced so many uh, of our current practices in our lives that we don't even know. So I was actually, you know, unaware of anything to do with camels. They just seemed to me like a figure from history, you know, or maybe there were some at the pyramids. And then um, a few years ago, I was at a children's book festival here in California, where I live, Southern California, and I saw a camel standing there. And I went over and looked at that camel, and it didn't mean much to me at the time. Then I saw a guy in a farmer hat uh, selling soap and lotion from camel milk, and I said, what else did they do with this milk? And he said they give it to premature infants in hospitals in the Middle East because it's thought to be non-allergenic and perhaps close to breast milk. And that's when I got my moment, my light bulb moment, we can call it, where I thought that it might help my son's autism symptoms, which were connected to his immune response. Um, My first book was on the topic of autism, 
a real boy. And so I had kind of turned all my focus and writing into autism when my son was diagnosed at the age of almost three. And so I'd spent a couple years focused on that. And so when I heard that camel milk uh, uh, thing, a legend, you know, that, that was all I heard, really. It didn't take much. It just inspired me to think it might help. And so I went home and researched. There was nothing on the Internet. I had to call a lot of people. I eventually flew in some uh, Bedouin frozen bottles of milk from the Middle East, gave it to my son, and he had an incredible overnight improvement. So ever since then, I've been writing and speaking about camel milk. That's so incredible. What are some of the things that make camel milk different than just cow's milk? Well, first of all, all milks have some things in common, but the camel milk is really, really special. And so it has, um, of course, it has you know things in common. Like I said, all milks contain uh, insulin, but camel milk has either in the insulin or insulin-like protein, as we would like to call it, that seems to be survivable in the human digestive system and therefore uh, seems to be able to be utilized, unlike the other animal milks that get destroyed during that digestive process. And the camel milk itself seems to help humans with uh, conditions connected to inflammation. That's a powerful emergency response that's mounted by our immune systems to fight infection. And um, some of these disorders that are helped by camel milk, which can include diabetes, Crohn's, colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, eczema, autism, these are all treated with dietary modifications to lower inflammation. And the camel milk seems to do that quite quickly um, in many of these situations. And then, of course, the milk itself has essential fatty acids, vitamins, and minerals, but the most amazing parts are the enzymes, immunoglobulins, and proteins. And the camel milk has some enzymes that are antibacterial, antiviral. Um, It looks as in studies as if they can promote growth, they can fight tumors, lots of different things, mitigate food allergies. And the proteins have also been credited with some um, antioxidant, um, anti-cancer, and immunological effects. And so, you know, without getting too deep into the science, we'll just say that it actually can produce peptides that act as natural antioxidants. So a lot of, you know, health conditions that are, are associated with what we call oxidative stress. And so regulating, you know, the inflammatory pathways is one thing it seems to be able to do. And, of course, it has uh, GABA in it, and that can help neurotransmitters in the brain uh, not be overactive. And it has natural uh, probiotics and some things like that. So I guess... Scientifically, one of the things that's distinct about camels is they have these tiny, tiny immunoglobulins. They're one-half to one-tenth the size of humans, and they have some very unique uh, bacterial and uh, viral uh, killing properties uh, better than other immunoglobulins. And uh, so it goes it goes on and on, And but I don't want to bore people with too much science lingo. But one of the things I do in the book is try to distill it into short, understandable chunks by human beings like us. So uh, if you want to know more, it's certainly available to you, that information. I, I find it fascinating, and that's why we're called the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast. They know what they're getting into when they click on the episode. They, they already know that. But I find it fascinating just the specifically the anti-inflammatory qualities of the milk because – in most Western diseases, as we kind of classify them, are generally based around the fact that we're eating a high inflammatory diet. And especially with a lot of people, I know myself included, dairy tends to promote more inflammation than it is actually reducing it these days. So I just find that fascinating that the camel milk can help with that. 
Well, it is so interesting because as I've, I've done a whole lot of research for this book, and that's an understatement. So I think one of the things that I have learned is that over the years, too, it's all come to a head here, is that the more natural soil-connected and microbiome-enhancing and unadulterated our food supply is, the healthier the human being is. So that is a tall order to pull off these days for most of us. And so it's eating has become like a defensive sport. And I found some research that even indicated uh, that pregnant women who are in an inflammatory state, and that inflammatory state can be driven by consumption of processed foods, um, face an elevated risk of having a child with ADHD or autism spectrum disorders. And then we also know, of course, that pesticides, power lines, air pollution, things like that do also heighten the risk of having a child with autism spectrum disorders. So it's kind of like we're on the defensive constantly. And then this inflammatory state is something that it's hard to get away from. So it's it's tough. And so to have a, a simple, easy product like a milk that actually can help combat that state is amazing. And then, you know, all milks are really incredibly good, but some of them cannot be tolerated by a lot of people these days. And cow milk, like cow is a, it's, a, it's an amazing concept because there's A1 and A2 milks. Some of your heritage breeds in India, you know, Desi cows, they're A2, and they don't have uh, the um, uh, beta-lactoglobulin type of, you know, proteins that that bug a lot of people. And in children with autism, they can kind of cause an opioid effect that causes them things like detachment, staring, uh, not exploring their environments, you know, i.e. autistic uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. So, but then, you know, most of the breeds of cows these days are, uh, you know, A1. And so, and then it's highly processed and they're in feedlots. They're not on the grass, you know, they're not free range. So we're really, and then they get pumped full of antibiotics. So I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but <laughs> you know, you see how the, it's not so much the animal in some cases is, 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 is the industrialized process, but camel milk is a very distinct and special milk. So I will give it that for sure. I love the idea. The way you phrase that eating has become a defensive sport, because that's so true, especially when you start really taking into account what you're eating. Right now, I'm trying to follow a, a kind of a muscle-building program and trying to bulk up. It is incredibly difficult to consume a lot of calories when you're eating whole foods. Like, it's shockingly difficult mm -hmm. to consume 3,000 calories when you're eating whole meats, whole vegetables, etc. And I have to say, I, it is making me more conscious of the foods that I'm eating on top of it. I'm already health-conscious, and now I'm thinking of it even more so. I'm usually not a big dairy guy because I don't struggle with most milks. And I, I'm honestly not a big milk drinker to begin with. But I find it fascinating how these, this milk sounds like it has so many different qualities to it, especially when you start talking about ADHD and autism. Because in my family, we have a very strong ADHD streak. It Some of my siblings have it more than others. I have it to a certain degree. So as I was reading your book, it definitely had a personal connection to me where I'm really curious and I really want to try this for myself. Would you mind talking a little bit about how your son reacted to it? I'd be happy to do that. So part of the unraveling of, of this, you know, the challenges that people have is, you know, we have to label things so we can understand them. But... Mm -hmm. 
things are kind of on a spectrum. You know, you can have your people with some mild ADD effects, you know, attention deficit defect, you know, effects. And then you have your ADHD where the hyperactivity can come in. And in many children's cases, that can be driven by what they eat. And adults, too. A lot of adults on the spectrum do report that they feel better when they're on certain diets. And I have a lot of young male adults adults that are actually contacting me now on the autism spectrum who are using camel milk or interested in it. And so the... The whole thing, you know, with my son and why I was led to this is it, after he got diagnosed, you know, it wasn't nothing against mainstream doctors. We need them, but they were not helping me with my son. They were just like, oh, well, whatever. There's some special ed somewhere he can probably get. Good luck. So it was the other mothers that told me, hey, remove this from his diet, you know, remove gluten, remove case and all this stuff. It sounded crazy to me, but I was willing to do it. And so it became quickly apparent when I removed cow milk that he got so much better and his language started to return. And then it became apparent when he would eat like normal bread at a restaurant, like within 15 minutes, he would get hyper and start diving under the table and kicking things, you know, just giddy like a drunk frat boy, as I call it, and camel crazy. So it became apparent that he could, he was really sensitive to diet, even though I wasn't aware of it before. So having learned about that, then once I had the idea about the milk, the camel milk might actually boost his immune system and help his autism symptoms. When I gave it to him, it was far exceeded what I expected. So I gave it to him at night at four ounces in a bowl of cereal before he to sleep. And the next day he got up and things were just so much different for him. It was remarkable. And he came down the stairs without dragging his feet, and he uh, ate better. Fine motor skills is what we call, you know, your ability to move your your hands uh, in a purposeful way. Things like writing, sewing, things like that, they require fine motor skills. And so his were not very good, and all of a sudden there he is, cutting his waffle more neatly. It's not slipping and sliding all over the place. And he was saying things like, gosh, Mom, you know, you're so great. You do so much for me. I really love you. You know, you make my food. You make my medicine. And those are things that we often don't hear from our children with autism, not only because their language might be impaired, but maybe they're not thinking that way uh, because, you know, autism literally comes from the Greek word like autos, or I think it's Greek instead of Latin, meaning, you know, unto oneself. So for them to start thinking about other people and expressing that is quite a leap. And so I was really shocked. And then he actually got on his backpack, he got on his own shoes, and he said something like, who's bringing me to school and who's picking me up? And that shows like awareness of an action into the future and actually socially asking other people a question. That's a big deal for some of these kids. And so it was quite astounding. And then he got much calmer. He was going through all this behavioral breakdown stuff where he would just wig out and just get so crazy and hyper, climb on things, and his life was at risk. He was seven years old when this, you know, when I had the idea. He was nine by the time I gave it to him, and he had actually gotten a little worse. And so I feel that it just, it did, well, I know it did. I mean, it did amazing things and stabilized him over a few years to come when I really, really needed that help for him. That sounds incredible, the the difference from what you're describing to how he was acting after the camel milk. As a mother, I can't begin to imagine how you felt that with this change, it obviously propelled you into further (laughs) research. It it was kind of, yeah, it was kind of crazy. Like I myself could hardly believe it. Like that morning, 
if you have read the book, and I know you have, I I didn't even want to make a peep. I didn't want to make a word. I couldn't believe it, you know, how incredible. Then fortunately, of course, now uh, thousands and thousands of other children in the world are experiencing similar effects. If someone wants to start with camel milk, where would be a good resource that they can start with to find sources for it? Well, uh, a lot of people aren't aware that it's not something that, like, every state has a farm. So in the beginning, of course, you know, you had to be me and fly it in from foreign countries and finally get USDA permission and, uh, you know, pay $1,700 for two suitcases of frozen milk. So once I did that, and then um, I found out a few years later that Amish farmers in America had started milking camels and that that milk worked the same way in my son, then I was able to realize, hey, it's the camel that does this, not just, you know, the feed or the breed or whatever. So now, um, of course, things have changed a lot, and we do produce our milk in America, but it's not produced in every state. So if you want to get it, you're, there are a few ways. First of all, you can buy it online, but you don't really you know, know exactly who the, the brand is or something. I mean, some of them have been around for a long time, and they're totally fine, but you've got to be a little bit cautious based on where you're located. In America, most of our brands are fine, but in some of the other countries, there are some adulteration going on, so you don't want to mess with that. So you can also drive. If you're, if you're in a state that has a camel dairy, you can drive and pick it up, and the farmers are very nice, and they'd love to see you, and you can pick it up from them. Or you can order it shipped to you in bottles, uh, which I do, or you can go to a grocery store. So if you just want to try to get one, you can call like a Whole Foods or somebody that has organic or natural groceries, but you might get some sticker shock because a 16-ounce bottle can be $29 in a grocery store. So it's a little cheaper to go straight to the farmer. <laughs> I, I think I also need to ask the obvious question that I'm sure everyone by now is like screaming, why haven't you asked this yet? How does it taste? That's the number one question. <laughs> and the num- and so people, they I've seen it so many times, it's actually kind of amusing. They pick up the little paper cup that they're going to sample or they, they ha- if I hand them a glass, you know, they kind of hold it, they get a little nervous. And then they sip it and they go, oh, it just tastes like milk. And that's, so that's, it's kind of a cliche. That's, that's the truth. Now, the taste can differ a little bit. As I write about in the book, I personally love, you know, raw and pasteurized. I love all kinds of camel milk. But you can taste the difference in the milks if they're raw, like a fine cheese. You know how cheeses all have their different expressions. Um, And so to me, the raw milks are like that. You get to taste like one guy, I'll be like, oh, that's Marlin's milk. And he's a, a farmer I write about in Camel Crazy. He's quite the entertaining character in Camel Crazy. And he's a real farmer here in America. So I'll, I'll be like, oh, that's Marlin's milk, because I know he has his own well, and I can taste how, how it goes. And then I'll be like, oh, that's uh, so-and-so's milk, because I'm just familiar more with like what that tastes like. So the slight variation, but basically they're all the same. Some people say that it can be a little salty. Personally, I never really feel that. Um, I think it's more common in other countries um, because of the condition of the camels. But I've had milk in many other countries, too, and it's it's all good. So one of the things that just struck me reading this book is that you're visiting so many different places, so many different cultures that are all kind of tied through camels. What was it like navigating between, say, Dubai and an Amish farm in Pennsylvania? Well, 
that's been so interesting to me personally um, because a lot of the camel cultures, so to speak, they are, the milk is pretty much produced by people that are very traditional. Mm-hmm. So even though the camels are new to Amish people, they are a very traditional culture. So I, you know, am not a traditional person. Of course, my family's been in Virginia for hundreds of years, and so in a way, I am a traditional American-type person. But I'm also, you know, not a person that lives under any particular uh, religious or cultural stricture, as as, um, some of the cultures have in place Mm -hmm. that have camels. So I have to say, though, people have been super nice, super welcoming. Like the first time I went to an Amish farm in America, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't know any Amish people. I didn't grow up where I even saw them. And so I changed out of my shorts, even though it was like 100 degrees and I, you know, didn't wear any makeup. And I was just like, I'm trying to be very, you know, like low key here. And I remember shopping for some toys to try to bring to the kids because I knew they had kids. And so I went into this little store. But when you pick up a toy that's targeted at the average young kid in America and you look at it through the Amish lens, it's not appropriate. So all the all the toys are things that they don't really promote or believe in. And so finally I had to settle like on some crayons and some letters and stuff like that. So then contrast that with, you know, going as you've asked to uh to India. And there of course Things are very, very traditional. The Rika people that I spent a lot of time with, they've been uh, doing this for centuries. They believe that they were created by Lord Shiva and their faith to take care of camels. That's been their purpose. And so, you know, they have traditionally been a very closed-off culture. They don't believe in selling camel milk. And a lot of cultures don't. They view it as a blessing for sick people and that it should be given away and not sold. But that's slowly changing. So uh, with them, at first... You know, I'm sure they just thought, here is another person who's a tourist-type person, or we don't know what she wants, but I already knew some people that welcomed me into that community. And so, funny, smoking, somebody handed me a little cigarette called a beedi, and uh, it's probably the most unhealthy cigarette in the world, and I don't smoke, but they're very popular in India. And so, uh, one of these camel guys at the Pushkar Camel Fair handed me a cigarette. Um, kind of like a challenge, I think. And I took it, and for some reason, because I don't even smoke, I managed to blow it right out my nostrils. I'm sure it looked pretty impressive to someone, uh, not knowing that I don't even smoke. And so they loved that. They got the biggest laugh out of it. And so after that, like, they were really friendly. And then um, I went to a giant camel. It wasn't giant, but it was a very big, very large tent, huge tent full of all these traditional camel people, um, mostly men. And, you know, they're all in their beautiful red turbans and their white traditional outfits. And so uh, I spoke, and it was translated, and I was trying to tell them, like, there is a demand for your product, and this is who wants it, this is who needs it, and this is some ways that, you know, you can try to hear from them and develop a need for your, your milk because the camels are under threat there in Rajasthan. And so visually, they didn't show a lot of response. But when I sat back down, some people, some of them uh, passed another beady up to me so I could take a smoke of it. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say one of the things that's fascinating about reading your book is it's almost a master class in networking. Just, I, it's incredible to see the different connective tissue of you're talking to this person that leads you to that person, and then you're talking to this doctor that leads you to that information. It, it's, again, I cannot brag on your book enough for you because it is so good. I, I'm just going to continue to tell people to go out and get it because it's a real page turner. 
it, it's a great story, and I do want to address that over and over again. But I kind of want to dig a little bit into the camels themselves, if you don't mind. The strength and power of the animals that you're describing. At first, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, oh, a camel sounds wonderful. I, I wonder if my, because I, I come from a farm background. My family lives on a little acreage. Oh, I'm sure they'd love a camel. And then I'm think, hearing about kind of like the strength that the camel can have. And I'm like, you know, on a flip side, perhaps not the best thing for me to get them. But where should a person start if they want to get into camels? Because I'm sure that there are people listening now. They're like, I'm up for that. I'm going to read the book. I'm going to look into what it would take to raise camels. Well, that's a great question. And actually, that's one of the reasons I wrote Chapter 14 in here. It's called Camel Feel the Soul, because this great expert that I meet and become friends with in the book, um, like he says, camel can feel an attack, you know, however... However you're, you know, how, whatever you're doing that they don't like, they're not going to like it. And you will not maybe suffer the consequences right away, but you might eventually. So I, I wrote that chapter because I, I knew people would be interested in getting camels. And I do hear from people. There are some farmers now that I've spoken with that are doing camels now because they've read the book or they've heard about the milk from me, and they're actually doing it. So I'm really impressed. It's being done right now. So I guess I would say that you have to depend on other camel owners. There's really no way to start getting into the camel world safely until you really know what you're signing up for. So camels, let's start with some fun facts, and then we can talk about how you can get into that. So first of all, it's kind of amazing. In America, camels are everywhere. We have at least 5,000, maybe more. That's just a conservative estimate. But they're just found every state, and they're in every um, hot and cold climate. You know, we have them in really cold Michigan. We have them in Arizona. And you can be driving down a highway and have no idea that there are camels around you. I mean, they're just, just, just tucked away in these most amazing places. Um, they're in Virginia, Tennessee, they're like everywhere, but you never see them. And so they can be expensive. They can range from, you know, just a little bit to, you know, $20,000. But in Cam in Dubai, racing camels are worth $2 million or more. Like um, the camels are really, really valuable, like in every culture. Like there's a guy here that has a, a really well-known camel farm. He and his wife, it's called Oasis Camel Dairy, and you'll meet them in the book. They're incredible, gifted camel people. But they said somebody called them once because they wanted to roast a camel, as is traditional in some cultures. And, uh, you know, my friends didn't want to sell the camel, but basically said, well, if you have $25,000, then maybe we'll talk about it. And, you know, the person didn't realize it was going to be that much in America to cost, you know, to pay for that. So, of course, they wouldn't have done it anyway, but um, they are very valuable. And so... Uh, you know, they're very intelligent. So camels are considered second intelligence only to dogs. When I talked to, you know, experts that I interviewed, they have an estimated mental age of around the 8-year-old child. But then I was in October in Texas at a camel clinic where you learn how to handle camels. And I was giving a presentation there. And uh, so there were some Australian cameleers there. And they had a camel down on the ground. He was kind of, the cameleer was kind of doing this interesting repetitive movement over the camel's face. And uh, he was kind of gentling him like the first experience for the camel. And he goes, see this one right here or whatever their accent was like. He said, he's so smart. He's like a 12-year-old. This guy's like a 12-year-old, you know, so smart. And uh, the humps, let's talk about the humps because a lot of people think they hold the water, but they don't. They're fat. 
Okay. So they the humps hold the fat for energy, mm-hmm. and some people actually eat or use the camel fat. Uh, fat you don't see it here in America, but I've seen it in um, Abu Dhabi. And uh, the camels can drink a lot of water too, thirty gallons of water in thirteen minutes, and it just goes on and on. Even their 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 reproductive habits are amazing. I mean, they uh, the female camels they only ovulate on demand. They release eggs kind of like a vending machine, only after they are bred with a rutting bull because the bull uh, stimulates their reproductive hormones. So that's kind of really interesting. And uh, one bull can impregnate like 24 females in one of his houses, you know, so to speak, at one of the great farms in the Middle East. So uh, it's um, and they're big creatures. They can be up to seven feet tall and around 1,600 pounds. So I can go on and on with the facts, but they're just kind of fascinating. And so if you do want to get into camels, I would suggest that you might want to get my book, Camel Crazy, because first of all, it'll teach you about them. And second of all, it will give you some people you can contact in the book that you can actually get guidance from. And uh, third of all, it has a list in the back of all the, the dairy farms in the whole world that you can get milk from. So in America, we have the farms are listed um, and other places. So if you want to get into the dairy aspect, these people are going to be good mentors for you. That was actually one of my favorite parts about the book is that at the end of it, you do list those resources because, I mean, it would have been a fascinating enough story on its own, but I've personally always felt that a book should be able to give you a starting place and then kind of just enough kick to get going. And by having those resources there, you give people a good step forward. What here? Here's what we've talked about. Now, here's what you can Here's further information that you can go take for yourself and learn your own journey. Well, thank you. I I really felt like um, I told the publisher like I have this you know this um, kind of appendix that has all the questions that people ask me. You know, want to try the milk or where do you get it or how much do you use or all these facts. And so they may. I know that some people will read the whole book and they'll love it and stuff, but there are some few people that are just like, I want to know where do I get the milk? How much do I use? Who are, where are the farms? And this is boom right there for them. And so they were like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And uh, actually one of the reviews, because several reviews have actually called out the index as like, wow, this is really useful. Cause you know, it's not the norm that you put indexes in all kinds of literary books, mm-hmm. but um, it, it seemed to be, be a thing that people welcome. Uh, one of the things you brought up earlier was talking about how the camels in the U.S. are in such different climates and areas, and that's actually a question I was going to ask because we traditionally think camels, obviously, western, southern, desert, sand, but, I mean, you're talking about them in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in cold, miserable climates. How do camels do in those conditions? Do they have to raise or train them any differently than they would in what we'd consider a more traditional context? Well, very, very good question. A very good agrarian question. So camels are highly, highly adaptable and extremely hardy. And deserts, yes, in other countries, and of course here, they get very, very hot in the day. But at night, they can be extremely cold. So the dromedary camels, that's the one-humped or Arabian camel, they're the focus of the dairy industry mainly. Yeah, you have your Bactrian two-hump camels that you know are used for dairy, but those are usually like far away in the Asian steppes and, and just more of a niche in the dairy world, Mongolia, let's say. 
But for the dromedaries, that's mainly the ones we use. And they are incredibly hardy, so it's amazing. Generally, they do very well. The challenges are, number one, they don't care for rain, so it's good to have a place they can come in out of the rain. Uh, But number two, the big thing is managing uh, parasites. Mm -hmm. So as we know, that's a challenge in lots of farming situations. So the parasite management is a constant thing that you have to do, but much less in the drier places. In the moister places, it's more of an issue. Um, so there's some products that you can use, but mainly, like if you run a ruminant with a non-ruminant, it tends to break some of the parasite infestation cycle. Mm-hmm. So like sometimes people say you should run goats along with cattle um, to help break that cycle. Uh, White Oak Pastures is an incredible farm in Georgia. They don't have camels, but they do use camel milk for their young child. And they actually endorsed the book. So I visited White Oak Pastures, and they're an incredible regenerative agriculture farm. And so Will Harris, he was telling me you know, about um, their success and kind of break that parasite cycle. But I hear that everywhere. Uh, the camel conferences I go to, uh, it's a constant discussion. So mainly it's really managing the moisture and the parasites, and there are ways to do it. So there were a couple of things that jumped out at me in the book. One of them is you actually do ask someone, do camels spit? And I think that's a perfect question to ask because, I, again, dispelling some of these beliefs that we tend to have in Western culture, we imagine a camel, we see it kind of chewing and then spitting at someone they don't like. Does that actually happen? That's the great part. It's also one of those constant questions, you know. So that actually was a question that I asked someone who's uniquely suited to answer it. His name is Doug Baum, and he is an incredible, um, believe it or not, specialist in camel saddles. And he's an American guy from Texas. Um, And he, yeah, he has his camel farm in Texas, and he reenacts the uh, U.S. Army Camel Corps. So he gets to dress up and play, you know, play toy soldier, I call him, and make a living partly that way. Um, But then he also goes to lots of other countries and leads tours and uh, camel-focused tours. So I actually visited him, and so I asked him, and I'll read a little bit from the book. I said, I know that camels aren't always sweet-tempered and calm as Richard, that's his big camel. So I ask a question. Doug, is the mean-spitting camel true or a myth? Camel spit, camel spit, camel spit, says Doug sardonically. Hollywood has beat this idea into the ground, but they don't. They puke. He scratches Richard with two farm-roughened fingers. There's never been a camel in the history of the planet that just looked at someone and said, you'll do, and then, he says, making the spitting sound. So they throw up? They chew cud. If they get nervous, that cud comes up involuntarily. So my advice is just don't make them nervous. Um, now, the uh, the thing about the spit, too, I've talked to lots of other people about that. So they'll give you a warning sign. It's usually if they're getting irritated by something, and uh, they'll give you a warning sign. So they'll start kind of like making a chewing, grumbling type of sound, and uh, then you know, you should really move away from a camel that's going to be doing too much of that. And then I have heard it told that they can spit a whole lot of stuff all over you. But again, it's not spit, it's throw up. And it's from their, you know, being really irritated. And I have been around thousands and thousands and thousands of camels. And personally, I've never seen it, but some people have. That just because it's because you're calming on the camels and they like you. And so they don't feel nervous and the need to upchuck on top of you. Very flattering, very flattering to me. <laughs> One of, you, you mentioned something that actually was my very next question, because as I'm reading this, 
I know that this probably doesn't surprise you at all. The first thing my brain latched on was, I'm sorry, U.S. Camel Corps? <laughs> there was, believe it or not, an incredible experiment right before the Civil War where uh, the, the U.S. Army had brought camels in from Tunisia and Egypt um, and the region that is now Turkey. And the whole idea was to help transport things and kind of like, you know, move through the West. So in a dry, deserty climate. And it was actually a really good idea. So they, they were used, they were brought in, and there's a famous camelier that was brought with him. And his real name is like Haj Ali. He has a more proper name, which I don't remember right now. But the soldiers, they couldn't say Haj Ali. They called him Hi Jolly. So um, this Hi Jolly, he's like the guy that helped, you know, raise the camels and tell people how to use them and all that. But then the plan was getting derailed because it was kind of championed, I think, if history serves me, my memory serves me right, by like more of a southern side of a person before the Civil War. And so, you know, it fell out of favor and the war happened and so they just dropped the whole project. But um, Haj Ali ended up living in a little town called Quartzsite, Arizona, for the rest of his days and became a local celebrity. And every year they have the High Jolly Days Parade, and I actually went to it this January. So it's a tiny desert town. It's a pretty town. I mean, they do a great job, but um, Haj Ali is like their, you know, uh, famous uh, history person. So um, that's something that's going on in Quartzsite to this day. That is incredible. I, I, again, these are those little nuggets of history that I love hearing about because if someone just randomly tells you that, you're like, oh, no, that can't be true. But, oh, my goodness, that's just incredible. Yeah, it's kind of incredible. I mean, pretty much the word camel and incredible goes together. Like, just to tell you some of the stuff that I, you know, wake up every day, that every day I learn something more amazing because I do have this incredible, uh, I'm fortunate to enjoy this incredible international camel network. And this morning I woke up and I saw a video of one of the largest Somali camels that has ever lived. It's sold in a public auction for 30,000 U.S. dollars in Somalia. And the thing is huge. And so some of the comments are like, oh, mashallah, you know, wow, it's amazing. And uh, then somebody said, it is said to have killed nine weak females during mating. Oh. You know, so it's like a massive camel. And so then, uh, you know, somebody else chimed in like, wow, how is this worth so much money when it's so aggressive? There must be some reasons. So it's kind of fascinating. Every day, like I say, I wake up and learn something more amazing about camel milk or camels. Well, I actually have some incredible questions to ask you about camels because, so I have a little sister who is seven years old and she absolutely adores camels. And I'm kind of to blame. When she had her second birthday, I gave her a little camel plush I, just offhandedly, I thought saw it. I went, oh, Bubby will love this, and I bought it for her. Since then, she has now grown a small herd of assorted camels that are plush, plastic, and every other conceivable kind. Her favorite thing to do is go to the zoo and just stare at the camels. Wow, what a girl. We love her already. <laughs> I know. So I told her I was doing this interview, and I asked her, what questions would you like to ask and she did not it did she didn't even have to really think about these questions. It was just immediately she rattled off uh I think I've got four questions here for you. So if you're game, I'd love to ask you my little seven year old sister's camel questions. 
Okay, we're going to go for our special uh, young camel expert to be. So our first question is, how do they stay cool even though they are so furry? Camels have some amazing traits that let them stay cool. They are able to recirculate their uh, moisture in their bodies, sort of like, um, I won't say an air conditioner, but kind of like that. So they get, the moisture comes out of their nostrils and it actually runs down into their lip and goes back into their mouth. So it's sort of like they're continuously recirculating their their moisture. And so they don't dry out, you know, and, and uh, suffer like so many people do. And they can go 30 days without water. So that's a special thing too. Most of us can't go all day without water, without feeling bad. The camels can go 30 days. They also have a special kind of blood. They have oval blood cells that will actually shrink, shrink down and compress. Imagine a football, you know, like you see people playing games with. That football gets squashed and squashed and squashed because all the water's coming out of it. And then when they drink water, that football swells way back up to over 200% of its size and lets them rehydrate. Now, if a normal uh, mammal, like an animal or human did that, they would die. But the camel is just fine. And they also have eyelashes that are super long. They have like a couple, more than one set of eyelashes, and that keeps out the the uh, the dry sand from their eyes, so their eyes can stay beautiful, shiny, and moist. And and they have a lot of other tricks. And so you know maybe your big brother will be able to find that part in the book Camel Crazy and read it to you. I'm sure she's going to love that answer. The next one was how many types of camels are there? Well, there are um, lots of kind of different breeds. As far as the types of camels, right now we say that there are two, but almost technically three. So there are the Arabian camels with the one humps, which we also call dromedary. And then there are the Bactrians that have two humps. Um, And so you can remember it this way, D... Uh, dromedary looks like a hump that's you know lying down on its side, and the B for Bactrian, the two humps, looks like the letter B, two humps lying on its side. And then there's some that are genetically a little bit different, and they are the wild Bactrians out in Mongolia and China. Those are very flighty, like really running fast kind of camels, and it, it's really difficult to get close to them, and they're protected because they're endangered. So very few people get to be close to them, but they genetically seem a little bit different than the other two. How do they eat thorns? They have a split lip, a soft, velvety lip that splits in the middle, and and they can move it around almost like a finger and a thumb. Take your thumb and take your first finger and try to pinch something. So that's kind of how a camel's lips can do it. So they're very soft, but they're very tough. So they can just nibble and nibble those thorns, and then they have very long, hard teeth. And camels, boy, they can eat just about anything. It's not good for them to eat some things like plastic that people leave in the desert. So that just shows we should always take out the trash that we bring in. But they can eat a lot of good things like thorns and um, very high uh, tree branches and things like that. Her very last question is definitely the most precious. How did they get so adorable? Well, you know, some cultures say they have different legends about that. 
Now, there's a faith called being Muslim, and they believe that the camels were created as a special gift to them and that their milk was very, very healthy and that they would help keep people healthy. And so that they consider them a very beautiful animal. And from their holy book, there's even a, a, a sentence that says, will they not look at the camels, how they are made? meaning that they are just so wondrous. And then, of course, in the uh, the faith of the Rikas, the camel people in India, uh, they believed that um, it was created by Parvati, uh, that she wanted to make the camel, but that she gave it an extra leg, and so that it couldn't walk too well. And so then they had to fix it and take that extra leg and put it up on the back, and it became a hump. So, and that the Rika people were created to take care of that animal because it did need a lot of care. So everybody over there loves to see a decorated camel. They will take that beautiful camel and make it even more amazing by by making beautiful multicolored cloaks and garlands to adorn it and flowers on its head. So that is a sight to see. My little sister is going to love those answers. Christina, thank you so much for well, joining us on the show today. Yeah. Oh, I've enjoyed it. You give her all my best. Absolutely. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Well, I um, have a website. It's christinaadamsauthor.com and Camel Crazy, A Quest for Miracles in the Mysterious World of Camels, which has a foreword by Joel Salatin, of course, a famous farming person. Um, It is available in just about any part of the world. If you go to my website, christinaadamsauthor.com, you can find the different buttons to push to get it. It um, actually is available from a bookstore near you, too. So if you want to buy it at a bookstore, just call them and they'll they'll get it to you. And uh, I am actually um, happy to say that it won a Nautilus Book Award. That's an international um, award, so uh, you can put your faith in what you read in it. We've taken good care with it. And then, of course, I'd love to hear from you on social media. I'm at Christina Adams Author on Facebook, Christina Adams Author on Instagram, and on Twitter at Christina Think. Thank you again so much for joining us on the show. Had a great time. Thank you. Big thanks to Christina for joining us on the show today. Be sure to get your own copy of Camel Crazy, A Quest for Miracles in the Mysterious World of Camels. It's really a fantastic read, and I can't recommend it enough. You can find the book linked in the show notes below. You can also follow Christina on all of the social media platforms, which again are linked in the show notes. You can go to intellectualagrarian.com forward slash camel crazy. Thank you for joining us today. If you're new to the show, please subscribe on whatever your podcast player of choice is. While you are there, please leave us a rating and review, especially on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. Tips on how to do that can be found at intellectualagrarian.com forward slash review. Thank you again for joining us today. This has been Terrence Lehew and the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast reminding you to keep farming the dream.